0: They're coming to get you, Barbara. Keep watching the sky. the new flesh.
1: Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother.
0: Don't fall
1: asleep.
2: I want to play a game. The blackest eyes, the
3: dozen's eyes. Children of the night. What music, baby? Good evening, boys and ghouls, and welcome back to Saturday Night's Spookorama, the podcast examining the history of horror films from the Golden Age to the present day. We are coming to you live in crystal clear spooksonic audio from our luxury studio at scenic Bohemian Grove, where we're enjoying the fresh air, swearing fealty to our alien overlords, and a musical talent show showcasing the songs of Andrew Lloyd Webber. What? I'm your host, Thad Kelly, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Justice Hepburn. Hi! Sabrina Gall. Hey, guys. And Alex Kump.
4: I'm a spooky
0: ghost.
3: Ooh. And our indefatigable producer, Mr. Andrew Barnes. Hey, everyone. This is episode 12, and tonight we're taking a look at two more films from 1940. First up, it's an independent film featuring an all-black cast, Son of Ingagi*. Then we take a look at an early horror comedy, The Ghost Breakers. So how are we doing tonight, guys?
4: You know, I'm alive, and I wish I wasn't.
3: Cool. Cool.
2: Sounds about right. I'm doing slightly better than that, but slightly, just slightly.
0: That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, well, I have a job, so. I finally stopped being a piece of shit and uh, edited an episode again. Uh. Well, what do you think, guys? Should we jump on into our first film,
3: Son of Ingagi*? Yeah. Let's go. Our film begins as newlyweds Bob and Eleanor celebrate their honeymoon. Reclusive Dr. Jackson was invited to their wedding, and shortly thereafter, she makes out her will. She tells Eleanor that she loved the young woman’s father in her youth and thanks her for her kindness in inviting her. Unbeknownst to anyone, the doctor has returned from a visit to Africa with $20,000 worth of gold and a strange ape-man named Ingina who lives in her hidden basement. Dr Jackson’s brother Zeno tries to extort the gold out of her, but he is frightened away by the ape-man. After drinking one of the doctor’s potions, Ingina flies into a rage and kills her. The doctor's new will has left her home and possessions to Bob and Eleanor, and the couple move in under a cloud of suspicion. The ape-man continues to commit murders under their nose until a police detective, Nelson, takes up residence to get to the bottom of the mystery. After some follies with the sandwich, Zeno tries to steal the gold hidden in the basement and is killed by Angina. The ape-man abducts Eleanor for unclear reasons, then accidentally starts a fire in the basement. Bob and Detective Nelson discover the basement, rescue Eleanor, and trap and Gina in the burning house. The Newlywoods and the detective escape the inferno with the hidden gold and live happily ever after.
1: God, that was so smooth. That was so much smoother than the plot itself.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what did we think of uh, Son of Ingagi*?
4: I
0: definitely watched a screen for about an hour. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh, it was a low-budget independent film, and it certainly shows. Yeah.
1: It's it's like what you show someone, um, a movie you would show someone for like a screenwriting class, the example of what not to do <laughs> in, in writing character conversations.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, as I alluded to, this is an important film for a lot of reasons. I think that it has a lot of technical problems uh, or technical and it has a lot of problems. Uh, it's an important film and I think it's an interesting film and uh, in ways that we... Can talk about, but for a little bit of background for those wondering why it's called Son of Ingagi and who Ingagi could possibly be, uh, considering that I never mentioned anyone named Ingagi in this um, uh, summary. Ingagi <sighs> was a film uh, released in 1930. Uh, we alluded to it without naming it in our uh, review of King Kong back in episode. Insert episode here. Six.
0: It was episode <laughs> six? Back in five. episode five. Episode five.
3: Back in episode five. Just say the King Kong episode. Yeah, the King Kong episode. I already said that. As uh, N'Gagi was a a major inspiration for King Kong. Now, this film bears basically no relationship to it beyond uh, the name, which I assume was done for marketing purposes, uh, because N'Gagi, uh was an exploitation film uh, masquerading as an ethnographic film, uh, supposedly <laughs> about um, a uh, a remote African tribe who offer up women <laughs> to their gorilla god as sex slaves, gorilla fucking. Oh, wow. Uh, the film was made in Los Angeles, featuring uh, white women in blackface uh, and a man in a gorilla costume. Oof. Oh boy! Uh, when the premise was discovered to be utterly false. Uh, The film came under litigation, but the film company that uh, created it had already, you know, vanished uh, before litigation could be brought against it, (laughs) Uh, which shows you the kind of movie that, you know, it was. But it it was, uh, you know, well-known enough that it uh, partly inspired King Kong and uh, was worthy of at least copying the title from uh, for this picture. And as we alluded to, uh, this is a film featuring an all-black cast, uh, it was written by a black screenwriter, Spencer Williams, who also appears in the film. To my knowledge, the director, Richard C. Kahn, was white.
4: He was, yeah, but uh, he worked with a lot of uh, all-black cast and filmed a lot of uh, black movies, which is cool.
3: It wasn't uncommon for white-owned film companies to make what they called race pictures out of a desire to capture a market. To explain that term, race films, because it doesn't sort of sit right in our modern tongue, that was the name given to movies made by black filmmakers featuring black casts, and made for black audiences. At the time, these things were not being made by major Hollywood studios, which were really only interested in white audiences.
0: We mentioned uh, Noble Johnson during some of our earlier reviews.
3: Yeah, we mentioned Noble Johnson. Uh, who appears in our second film this week. Yeah. Uh, but yes, Noble Johnson and his brother uh, owned a uh, small company that made um, what they called race movies. And that's a, a type of film that has existed basically since the beginning of filmmaking, commercial filmmaking, uh, and mostly died out, say, around the the end of the 1940s as culture and and sort of commercial filmmaking changed but uh you know you can find i guess antecedents later on in the black exploitation films of the 1960s and 1970s and uh a lot of these movies although many of them were lost uh have been sort of rediscovered and critically reappraised in the modern day. Uh yeah guys I don't know what what uh, what do we all say about Son of Ingagi?
4: It was m- moderately enjoyable. I wouldn't say, you know, it was uh, 110 minutes long, and eight minutes are lost for good. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just barely over an hour. Just sort of like the... M-
3: 70 minutes long. An hour 10.
4: That's Yeah, I meant an hour 10, because uh, words are hard, and so our numbers. I went to theater school. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was sort of like a mummy movie. You know, if it's an hour long, like, you can't
3: really, like... You can't get too mad about it.
4: Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there were some, you know, fun bits and some fun characters, you know, it wasn't a waste of my time, but it wasn't like a you know, I guess, productive use of it. Is it was... <laughs> it's like the same as when I like sit down and like I'm like, oh, I'm gonna watch an entire season of Park and Rex tonight.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've done that.
3: Yeah, I think that uh, it's mostly interesting as a historical artifact. Whether or not it's the first black horror film is sort of unclear. I- I've been reading around, and apparently, there's other sort of films that could fill that criteria. Some of which are lost. It's definitely the first all black film that's a monster movie Um, it does have the ape man monster and I think that there you you know there's a lot of connections you can draw with this film to sort of the old dark house genre which we talked about way back in episode one in that it's any movie that reminds you of the Rocky Horror Picture Show (laughs) is like an old dark house movie you know you got newlyweds they move into a mansion there's weird stuff going on I think there's obvious parallels you can draw with sort of the golden age uh, horror films that Universal and others made in the 1930s. You know, there's very uh, Frankenstein's monster quality about uh the ape man in Gina who kills people, but then seems, you know, at other times, seems uh, childlike or or innocent. So, yeah,
0: I don't know. That's a smart thing, you said.
3: <laughs> yeah, we're going to make this podcast smart again. That's what <laughs> I've decided. If
0: that won't let me drink three beers before we start anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, especially in context of
2: our other movie tonight, Ghostbreakers, I thought it was really interesting and kind of cool that this movie started out with a a happy black couple, b a a black lawyer, and then c a black doctor. Because like in a, a black woman black doctor. female doctor. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's very important. Because in every like mainstream movie of this time, the the black characters would be side to, like, servants or comic relief idiots and stuff.
0: The guy from our next movie.
2: Yeah, the guy from our next movie, who we will talk about a lot, I assume. <laughs> no, I just thought it was really cool and interesting that, like, this movie started with, like, hey... Positive representation. That's that's
3: nice. It was neat to see that sort of domestic scene, the vision of uh, sort of the 40s black middle class also featuring some uh, delightful uh, jump blues from the Four Toppers.
2: Oh, yeah, that was great.
1: They were yeah. so great. I wanted them to come back again God, later.
3: I would love to be surrounded
4: by Four Toppers. <laughs> <laughs> Barnes, that goes in the podcast. You got it. <laughs> I would like to say, um, by far the best part of this movie was uh, the performance of the actress who played the doctor. I forget uh, what her name is because I'm a monster, but she is like so much better than anything else in this movie. she is she's better than the movie. like she they she they shouldn't
1: have gotten her because she's too good for them. Actress's name is Laura Bowman and, or and Dr. Jackson is her character name. Thank
4: you.
3: As I understand it, she was uh, a very early. Uh, sort of vaudeville performer and black film actress. Um, as you you know can tell what performer like vaudeville.
4: Uh, so vaudeville was um a historical sort of performance style. It was like a bunch they would do a popular bunch of, theater. Uh, you'd go to a theater. They would do a bunch of skits. There'd be songs. You know, they, some would tour. Some would be like the one in town, and you just go see it and like. It was sort of like uh, the big entertainment before movies became really big, and then a while into that. It's like a variety show.
3: To go back just briefly to what we were talking about, sort of that that middle-class domesticity, that was very typical for sort of these uh, race movies. They very, very rarely dealt with uh, issues of sort of racism, social issues, showed sort of segregation, black poverty. They were the Cosby show of their day, and very focused on sort of the uh, bourgeois values of... You know, hard work and um, all that bullshit. Uh, so you can you can see that in this film as well. But Laura Bowman is very good. The other actor I did want to highlight is the screenwriter Spencer Williams, who plays the comic cop character Nelson. Uh, he was himself a black filmmaker. He directed the sort of um, all time great uh, race film, The Blood of Jesus. Uh, which is considered, you know, one of the greatest uh, movies of this type. And he also appeared uh, on the television version of Amos and Andy, which was the uh, famous uh, blackface radio show. Uh, obviously, you couldn't see their face, but, you know, it was white comedians doing, um, you know... Uh, uh, these uh quote unquote black uh, characters, uh, and when it became a television show, they actually cast uh black actors. And um, Spencer Williams um until at least until very recently was you know most known for appearing on the television version of *Amos and Andy*.
4: Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about uh the problematic uh Africa Ape Man.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's like an almost. What the fuck was she doing in Africa? Where did she get that gold? <laughs> Where did? You know, why does she have an ape man?
1: She was doing some sort of doctor stuff.
3: There's no way to get that much gold, honestly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was a gift to me from King Leopold. <laughs>
3: yes. If there is any connection this film holds to Ingagi, it's that uh, there is a an ape man. Uh, so is this a missing link creature, or are they implying that this is
0: a half? Gorilla, half human. Also, like the movie would have been fine with just a gorilla. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not true. even
0: an ape man, just an ape.
4: Yeah, um, I think my uh, a little bit of analysis, if I had to kind of put on my film thesis hat, do it is there is something uh that is so when we're talking about these race films of this period that like, they focus very much on like middle class values, uh, you have that. Compared to sort of the, uh, you know, upper class white view of black people, which is that sort of you know uh, beastly point of view that's super racist uh, and like you know animalistic, and uh, I think there's something interesting about the balance between you know trying to keep up this life as like, you know like a tr- quote unquote traditional American uh, you know whitish life. And the fear of a uh, monster that uh, represents uh, negative perceptions of the people who you are. Was that smart at all?
3: Yeah, I think that's smart. Mm. Yeah. Maybe to spin it a different way, or, or like the film exists in a world where, like, a black community with prosperous, you know, middle class people, black doctors, black lawyers, we mentioned all this and all black police force and this doctor character goes to Africa again for unclear reasons, but you know, I almost felt like um like a weird sideways like uh, like pan african or I don't know. <laughs> I I I was reminded of like that, that there would be some kind of connection or interest in Africa as a place, even if it comes out in this movie as like fucking uh, a place where ape men and gold comes from. <laughs> <laughs> but to have this black society that would have some connection to Africa, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm talking out of my ass, but um, it it sort of reminded me of of sort of later black intellectual thought about Africa. I don't know.
4: I think it's probably more like the seed of that, uh, not this film in particular, but you can kind of see the the relation starting around this time period. Right. It's not and nothing, is, anything
3: too explicit or or really anything solid, but maybe a seed of it, like you say. Yeah. Well, gang, is there anything else we want to say about *Son of Ingagi*?
1: Oh no, I I want to talk. I want to talk about the uh, detective guy. There is a very lovable <laughs> scene with the detective where he's making sandwiches and <laughs> this is a this is what i think is a very uh it's comic gold it is comic gold
3: yeah no it's cute it it's a cute scene and and i don't want to to, to rag on this movie too much cuz there is some cool stuff in it i really like when uh, yeah, uh dr jackson is killed by ingina and uh, you see like a, an ink pot fall over and ink spill out everywhere. I thought that that was an effective um, sort of substitute for explicit violence.
4: Mm. Um, I would like to point out that this is the first film where we saw somebody get attacked and then bleed from their attack.
3: Mm. Oh, yeah. That's true. But Barnes, say the thing about gold. Oh, okay. So, in the beginning of this movie, what's his name? Zeno. Zeno. Who I thought was Gino, and I was like, why the fuck (laughs) is her brother Italian? (laughs) (laughs) The doctor's brother Zeno comes
0: in, and he's like, "Uh, I know you got $20,000 in gold you hidden from the government. And so Thad was like, Why is she hiding gold from the government? Like, to not pay the taxes? But in uh, 1934, I believe, the federal government bought up all of the gold, uh, and it became illegal to own gold. Whoa. Really? Yeah, because in the wake of the uh, Great Depression, they had to increase the money supply somehow, and the country was still on the gold standard. And also, the the price of gold at the time was uh, being held artificially low, so they bought up all the gold in America at the... uh, previous price and then reset the value of gold by law to where it should have been
3: so yeah dr jackson wasn't just um dodging the
0: duty on importing gold so like we're we're ragging on this movie but except for the main ones sort of you know the the big names uh the doctor and uh, spencer williams like no one in this cast had actor training they were all amateurs
2: That makes
0: sense. That That makes a lot of sense. They're hit or miss. I think the acting was pretty good, but the screenplay was really not that great at all. I think this movie could have been great. Not great great, but this movie could have been pretty good, considering its budget and the conditions it was made under, if it just had a better screenplay.
3: Uh... I I mean, for the most part, I think the direction's pretty flat. But again, you know, $5,000 budget, how good of an ape-man costume can you make?
2: You, you can make better than that, probably.
3: <laughs> so, guys, what do we think the moral of this movie is? Always invite the
0: rich old woman to your wedding. <laughs>
3: <laughs> don't let a, an untamed ape-man live unsupervised in your delicate scientific laboratory.
2: <laughs> uh, don't ring random gongs you find in people's houses.
3: <laughs> I <will end> <laughs> in this film's defense so many fewer people ring that gong than i was expecting yeah. i was expecting literally <laughs> yeah. every actor in this movie to line up ring that gong and that kit, get killed by an ape man but <laughs> only like two people do
1: what that would have been pretty cool actually
3: well gang would you recommend son of ingagi
4: no i would uh reiterate what that said and that it's a uh film of some historical importance uh and it's not the worst watch in the world if it's saturday night and you're looking for a nice little spook maybe it's not the best movie for that but you know it's a it's a value
2: yeah i think i'd pretty much only recommend this movie to like horror movie nerds and on that level it's worth watching like if you're interested in the history of horror movies and you want to see the first horror movie with an all-black cast? Like, go for it. This is This will be well worth your time.
3: Spookorama fans.
2: Spookorama fans. Exactly. <laughs> you, you and the audience. You'll probably get a kick out of this, but like, maybe don't bring your random schmuck friends along who don't like horror movies. They will not enjoy this movie.
3: Yeah, I would say uh, I wouldn't recommend this film to a general audience. To piggyback on what Alex and Justice said, if you're interested in. The history of horror films or the history of uh you know African American filmmaking, you might take some value out of it, but it, you know, for a general audience, no, I wouldn't recommend it. Barnes?
0: Yeah, I have to agree with all that. Cool. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm so educated and I'm so civilized, cause I'm a straight vegetarian. But with the overpopulation and inflation and starvation and the crazy politicians
3: So our next film is The Ghostbreakers. On a stormy night in New York City, Mary, played by Paulette Goddard, discusses her upcoming trip to Cuba with the Cuban consul. Mary has inherited a castle on Black Island off the coast of Cuba, but the consul warns that the castle is haunted. Mary is visited by Parada, a Cuban solicitor who makes her an offer to sell the castle by an unknown client, and also receives a call from a mysterious man named Ramon Maderos. Meanwhile, a radio DJ named Larry Lawrence, Bob Hope, Nervously visits her hotel to confront a mobster angry over one of his radio stories. We see Medeiros confront Parada, who shoots Medeiros while Lawrence panically shoots his gun, thinking he's being ambushed by the mobster. Lawrence mistakenly believes he shot Medeiros and runs to Mary's room to hide. He convinces her to let him in, and she talks the police away, not knowing that a porter has taken Larry aboard the ship on which she is sailing to Cuba, because he's hidden in her trunk. Mary and Larry's valet, Alex, played by Willie Best, attempt to recover the trunk before the ship sails, but the three of them are stuck sailing to Cuba. On board, Parada appears and reveals he is also sailing to Havana, and Mary meets an old friend, Jeffrey, who also warns her against going to the castle. In Havana, Ramon's twin brother, Francisco, threatens Mary. Larry, Alex, and Mary all travel to the castle where they see a ghost, a zombie, and some other stuff. Eventually, they discover that Jeffrey has been trying to frighten Mary away from the castle with a Scooby Doo plot involving a silver vein, but he gets crushed to death. <laughs> Everyone lives happily ever after. Uh, well, gang, what do we think of The Ghostbreakers?
1: So much fun, but also uh,
0: really something. Yeah, I think it's a fun movie.
2: Yeah, I was extremely charmed by this movie, except for the parts that I was extremely put off by.
0: <laughs> Which parts would those have been, massa? Ooh, ooh!
2: Yeah, the the racist parts. The, those those
3: were the parts that were troubling. I think that there's an interesting conversation to be had about that character. Not that it isn't racist. I want to say that straight ahead. It is, but there's an interesting conversation to be had. Yeah, I I would say
4: um, you know, as much as there's a lot of uh, race related humor in his direction, he is also treated like an equal. To everyone else, for the most part,
3: or at least a human being, which um, yeah. a lot of the, these types of characters are not in these films. He's still a servant, though.
0: He's still treated like a servant.
4: Yeah. Well, he's treated more like a, a I guess, like a friend servant than like a, like a jeeve servant, which is a step forward at, at the time.
3: Yeah, I mean, he affects the plot. He has independent ideas. You know, he gets off some quips. But okay, we'll talk about that in a second. So uh, this film obviously uh, is a Bob Hope comedy. From 1940, Uh, the year prior, uh, in 1939, he and I believe also Paulette Goddard made a film called The Cat and the Canary, which we mentioned in a previous episode. And that film was a remake of a silent film. 1929. 1929. Uh, yes, uh, that Universal had made, uh, and they remade in Sound as the Cat Creeps, which was a lost film, classic examples of the old dark house genre. And The Cat and the Canary, the 39 version with Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard, uh, was one of the earliest examples of a horror comedy where you know a comedy spoofs the conventions of horror movies that had been established throughout the 1930s. This film, The Ghost Breakers, is in many ways a follow-up to The Cat and the Canary, Uh, It features both Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard, again, and it's also a horror comedy, this one taking place in an exotic locale. As I understand it, it was sort of a turning point in the careers of both those actors. Bob Hope, obviously, is one of the most popular and beloved comedians to ever live, and Paulette Goddard, for her part, was a very popular actress of the 1940s. Um, She won no, she was nominated for an Academy Award in 1943, had a fruitful film career. She featured in several Charlie Chaplin films, uh, lots of fun stuff. But uh, kind of all started here with The Cat and the Canary, which we didn't watch, and The Ghostbreakers, which we did. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, what do we want to say about The Ghostbreakers?
4: I think this movie was hilarious. Um, I laughed
1: very hard a lot of times. Yeah, you definitely guffawed. <laughs> I was a guffawing
3: fool. Yeah, there's a lot of good lines, good bits. You know, sort of the Bob Hope school of comedy is throw gags at the wall and see what works. So, I mean, not all of them work, but they come so fast that it's like, you know, you can't help but crack a smile. You don't have time to groan at the bad ones. Exactly. Bob Hope, of course, was f- most famous uh, for appearing with Bing Crosby and Dorothy L'Amour. In the uh Road to film series, uh you know Road to Morocco, Road to Bali, they made like at least a half dozen of those. Those were musical comedies, uh, extremely popular. Uh, but this is obviously Sans Bing, songs Dorothy. But uh you know his his style of comedy is well on display here, and this is actually a relatively early film for him. I believe his first. A uh, future film appearance was in 1938, so this is pretty early in his film career. He'd already been a vaudeville star at this point.
4: I think if you need any example of the Bob Hope School of Comedy, it is uh, the montage where they're wandering around the mansion and just like going to different rooms and like finding like mini clues and just like m- making jokes about them and like cut to the next room. Oh, here's a piano. Let's
1: make a joke. Cut to the next room.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: No, it's really wonderful.
3: And it's not all wordplay. There's a really fun bit where he's um, he's been trapped in the trunk and he gets let out is a great physical comedy bit (laughs) and you know and alex has to help him get up you know and they're they're bantering back and forth and then he uh alex throws him down on the bed and his legs gradually uncurl and you know he says something like now i can die or something like that (laughs) you know there's actually some dark humor in there uh as i allude to before you know he's talking about visiting cuba and he says well you know what they say see cuba and then die you
2: know there's there's a lot of funny jokes which you know considering how fast they come it's it's really easy to see in this movie how bob hope like remained a star for like 40 or 50 years cuz he's he's on point
3: oh yeah
1: yeah and the jokes are still relevant mostly
3: and i think if you really look at the plot of this film uh it's not terribly sound uh, you know, some stuff happens, characters are introduced, but and then never really pay off. What happened to the fat guy? Yeah, there's like a fat guy who never who just keeps appearing and then he never really yeah. is part of the plot. There's a ghost and a zombie and they're disturbed by the ghost but not the zombie. Like at the end of the movie, they're like, Wait, but how did Jeffrey make that ghost appear? And they're like, No, the ghost was real. Um and they're like, Whoa <laughs> but like the the zombie was real. That didn't bother you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, they, they just sort of leave the zombie in a closet, and that is the resolution. I assume he starves to death in there.
3: Before we really get into the racial politics of this film too deeply, I do think it's worth mentioning that for a film set in Latin America, several of the actors are actually of Latin American extraction, uh, which is unusual for this time. There was a good deal of interest in, you know, um, in Cuba, uh, around this time, and it's um, sort of a fun little look at pre revolutionary Cuba, aka the playground of America's Rich. Pedro de Cordoba, who plays the Cuban consul, uh, as well as Anthony Quinn, who, despite his name, is Mexican uh, and plays the Maderos brothers, uh, are both uh, Hispanic. Paul Lucas, uh, who plays the solicitor whose name, I forget. Parada? Parada, yeah. He was Hungarian, but two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> well, you know, Edward G. Robinson was a Romanian Jew, and yet they cast him as Italian gangsters every time. So what can I say?
1: <laughs> so uh, let's take a second to talk about uh, Paulette Goddard. She's fantastic, our leading lady.
3: Yeah, she's a, she's great. She's great.
1: Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, her character is really enjoyable the whole whole way through she's got a a fair amount of agency and like is just gorgeous i've said that twice but i (laughs) but i mean it both times
3: and she is a great comic actress you know and she appeared in many comedies in her time like i said she was in the charlie chaplin films but she really holds her own against bob hope she's she's very funny and uh yeah really great Mm -hmm. she uh actually was briefly married to charlie chaplin one of many women that he married, uh, and she appeared in uh, the classic Chaplin comedies Modern Times and The Great Dictator. Oh. But she also later married Burgess Meredith, the premier character actor of Hollywood, and both of them were blacklisted by the House on american Activities Committee. What? Yeah, Burgess Meredith didn't work for 10 years, but she uh, her career survived.
2: Huh, I didn't know that about old Burgess. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yes. Uh, so pretty interesting.
2: I will say she has a fair amount of agency until... The very end, which, like, all all of these <laughs> movies will always end in a marriage. Like, they'll always end with the main couple getting engaged. Uh, but in this one... I, but it was pretty funny. It was a good gag, but also Bob Hope just sort of declares, hey, I'll tell you about it on the honeymoon. <laughs> and she's like, what honeymoon?
3: Musical swell. Yeah, tell me more. Yeah, I mean, it's been often said about... Well, especially about screwball comedies, but I think you can say about a lot of comedies from this time period that they, during the plot, upset traditional values, and then the plot uh, arises from that, but then ultimately they reaffirm traditional values, uh, usually ending with a marriage or something like that. So this is a good mm-hmm. example of that. Well, gang, while we're talking about some of the actors, uh, you know what time it is? What time is it? It's the Spookarama Trivia Minute. Ah! I did want to just mention some trivia about the actors in this movie. Longtime listeners of this podcast will remember Pedro de Cordoba from The Devil Doll, where he played one of the conspirators. Oh, really? Huh. Yep. Paul Lucas, who played the Solicitor, he won Best Actor in 1943, uh, while Anthony Quinn, uh, who played the Maderos brothers, uh, won Best Supporting Actor twice in the 1950s, and uh, Noble Johnson... Uh, who played the zombie in this film, will be well-remembered by longtime listeners of this podcast for appearing in both The Mummy and King Kong. Oh. And this has been your Spookarama Trivia Minute. So I guess, uh, you know, the big uh, sort of hanging thing in the air is the character of Alex, played by Willie Best, and that is worth talking about. Uh, Willie Best was a very prolific black uh, comedic character actor. Uh, he often appeared in small roles in films, playing you know these comic servant characters. Uh, he was often credited under the name Sleep and Eat, Ooh. much <laughs> like <Ooh>. another <laughs> oh, no. uh, black actor from that time, Step and Fetch It, mm. was another was another one. And if you've seen the Spike Lee film Bamboozled, yeah. the name Sleep and Eat will sound familiar to you because he uh, used that. Can we talk for a second about how good the movie Bamboozled is, though? Spike Lee comes up a lot on this podcast.
0: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Also, uh, wasn't maybe it wasn't Spike Lee. Someone just made a movie based on uh, The Tears of Jesus. I think it was the Spike Lee's newest movie, but maybe I'm thinking of Chirac and mixing up something else. <laughs> Regardless, uh, Bamboozled is really great. Uh, it's a movie about a, a black executive at a television studio who hates his job and wants to go out in a bang. So he uh creates a modern day minstrel show but they cast black actors and put them in blackface. Huh. And then it becomes a hit. It's so good. Wow.
3: Yeah, so I don't know. I think uh especially to the modern the modern ear um the character of Alex is really really like ooh it puts you on edge, you know, cuz like it is racist, there's no reason to not say it's racist. I guess the way I conceive of it is um like The Merchant of Venice. <laughs> The character of Shylock (laughs) is anti-Semitic, is an anti-Semitic character. Compared to the plays that were written at the time, Shylock is a million times better. Uh, The character of Alex in this film is a racist, an anti-black racist character. Compared to African-American roles in Hollywood movies at the time, he's a million times better. (laughs) So, you know, I, I don't want to excuse it or pretend it's not real, I guess it's just worth yeah. saying, you know? Like, I think of the scene where, uh, you know, uh, Larry's in the, the cabin of the uh, ship. He's just, you know, stretched out on the bed, and, you know, and Alex says, did you shoot that man? And Larry says, yes, I did. And Alex says, no, you didn't. My gun is a thirty-two, and that man was shot by a thirty eight. This is a character who actually affects the plot, you know, who has his own ideas. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a racist character, but definitely... Not to the grotesque extremity as was common at the time in Hollywood movies.
2: The other thing I wanted to add about this movie being interestingly less racist than it could have been, I thought it was cool that Bob Hope and Alex were equally scared going through the mansion. Yeah. Like, I kind of totally expected Bob Hope to be, like, comedically stoic and, like, Alex to be this bumbling idiot who's like terrified of everything but like they were on fairly equal footing once they actually got in there as far as like we're both at a haunted mansion <laughs> this is spooky which I, 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 I thought that was nice
1: so one thing I um, you know I'm thinking about now and that I was impressed with is you don't actually get you know, so this movie's about an hour and a half long um, you don't actually get to the mansion that's been inherited until an hour in yeah. But it didn't feel like that was a bad thing. Um, I know in a lot of uh, movies we've watched, you know, you, you get like five minutes of this spooky stuff and then um, and, and you feel really uh, like you've been ripped off. But the characters were all really enjoyable to watch while they, you know, stumbled their way to Cuba.
3: <laughs> in a lot of horror films, you have either, let's say it's a monster movie, for example, you have either too much monster or not enough monster. You know, you have to strike a fine balance. Perfect
4: amount of monster.
3: Yeah. I mentioned when we were talking about Sonny Bengagi, old Dark House movies. And the convention in those films was for supernatural events to be explained away as some kind of trickery. And this is a film that's obviously ripping off old Dark House. uh, Not ripping off, but riffing on old Dark House movies. Hmm. And so the fact that, whoa, the ghost is real, would have been kind of uh, unexpected for the time. I love that castle set, by the way. Oh,
2: yeah. That's Oh, nice. that set's
3: amazing. Even if they only had like three rooms, it's cool as hell.
4: Yeah, I-, I really also appreciated the um, the glass coffins looked really cool. Yeah. yeah. They were so nice. A nice little fun throwback to the black hat.
3: Mm. <laughs> and speaking of um, Spookorama trivia, one thing I didn't mention is that the actress who played the caretaker, the mother of the zombie, Virginia Brissac, was one of those old sort of actors or actresses from the silent era, long career, but she's best remembered today for appearing in a Rebel Without a Cause, actually. Oh, wait. Mm-hmm. She's the grandmother. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah.
2: Okay, here's what I was wondering when watching this movie. How much did Scooby-Doo rip this movie off? <laughs>
3: Like and also the oh whole
2: genre. Like Alex is obviously Shaggy, and then we got Larry is Fred. Obviously, <laughs> uh, Paulette Godard is Daphne.
4: But who's Scooby?
2: That was the one innovation of Scooby Doo. They added a dog. <laughs> they added
4: the dog. <laughs> like, can someone explain to me what the fuck they were talking about as a go- like? They brought it up in the script. I don't know the fuck a housebreaker is, or like whatever.
3: Like, what is this? It does seem like a You're thing a where the th- the script like, <laughs> had to justify a title, you know? Like somebody thought, well, this was based on a play, I believe, and yeah, was. maybe the playwright had this great idea for a name you know the ghost breakers but then he had to explain it in the script
4: <laughs> <laughs> so i like went into this and like it starts with this blackout at this hotel and i was like oh like ghost breakers it's like i don't know like the lights in this hotel ha- haunted hotel are gonna go out and then like it's gonna be like like uh, the breakers are down and like it's because ghosts are fucking with everything and ooh spooky and it had zero things to do with that and that's bullshit
1: yeah i was ready for it to be uh pre-ghostbusters uh <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, nineteen forties Ghostbusters that they would round up ghosts somehow.
0: Uh, Ghostbusters is certainly in the same vein.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you can uh, look at it as a uh, long distance relation. You know, yeah, why not a descendant? The long genre of horror <laughs> comedies. Uh, I think you can see as descendant from this anything that mixes horror and comedy. I don't know, The Evil Dead. Well, maybe Evil Dead too. Scary movie. A scary movie. Oh yeah. In fact, I think if this film has a like a direct descendant it's scary movie (laughs) you know it's uh, parodying (laughs) the horror films of the day yeah so good well gang is there a lesson we can learn a moral we can take away from the Ghostbreakers?
4: um if like 800 people are like hey don't go to this house like maybe just just sell it maybe
3: don't (laughs) go yeah she probably could have made a lot of money just by selling the fucking castle like isn't Mm. isn't it enough let that guy have the silver.
1: But then she would have had to live forever and um, not go to Cuba. That's <laughs> terrible.
3: If you ask a question about your genealogy and it leads you to discovering that you're a descendant of the most notorious uh, slavers in Cuba,
0: I don't know. Maybe just don't ask. Yeah. <laughs> For a horror comedy, this movie sure has a big fucking body count. Well, they all just get shot to death. Yeah, like six guys just get shot. <laughs> <laughs> They don't get killed by ghosts. <laughs> well, gang,
3: would you recommend the Ghost Breakers? I wholeheartedly, yeah. It was
4: a, a fun time. Takes a you know a little second for you to get adjusted to how nothing quite makes any sense, but <laughs> mm. it's a fun movie overall. And I uh, hope we get to watch another fun uh, movie like this.
1: Yeah, no, I def- I would have I would watch this with un- with a person like organically. Yeah,
2: no, this movie's fun as hell. I might give a caveat or two because I was very shocked and taken aback by the racism. (laughs) I did not see that coming. Uh, So anyone I recommended this to, I would say, hey, just so you know, they're racist. They're hella racist.
3: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'd recommend this movie. Well, gang, I think that just about wraps up our discussion of uh, this week's movies. So next week uh, is going to be episode 13, and we're going to be talking about a couple of films. From 1941, we're going to be watching The Wolfman, Man*, very famous, iconic horror film. And after that, from 1942, we're going to be talking about Cat People, directed by Jacques Tourneur and produced by horror legend Val Luton. Oh,
1: man, what a species-based week. We've got next. <laughs> yes,
3: multi-species. Yeah, it's a Spookorama Anthro Hour. <laughs> <laughs> Folks out there in podcast land, if you like the show, check us out on Patreon.com/Spookorama. You can make a small monthly donation to us there. That helps keep the show alive, keeps us going. Uh, it helps us improve the show. We are speaking on brand new microphones that were bought with your Patreon money. If you don't think we're worthy of even a cent, you can still support us by following us on Twitter at twitter.com at spookorama, or you can subscribe on iTunes, and please feel free to leave a rating and a review there that helps us out a lot in
0: terms of visibility. Please send us email at spookoramapodcast at gmail.com. If we get even one message from a fan, we will have a mailbag i'm really looking forward
3: to that all we need is literally one email
1: (laughs) yeah please guys please talk to us on any
3: of our social medias
1: i i hate checking my twitter 10 times every day and not seeing anything interesting from from our fans
3: and if you can't even be bothered to do any of that please feel free to tell a friend about the show tell an enemy about the show if you hate us just get the word out there that really helps us a lot well gang i uh hope you had fun tonight i know i did as i always do and uh, for the folks out there in podcast land up we've had a great time and i think we're gonna sign off now what do you say guys sounds good all right well say goodbye folks goodbye folks see ya see you around bye con dracula bye everyone